From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Molly Kaplan, your host. The 2020 election was notable for a lot of reasons, but one winner really stood out. Drug legalization. Five states legalized either medicinal or adult use of marijuana. Oregon and D.C. went even further and decriminalized or legalized hard drugs. And the momentum garnered from these cross-country wins helped push the MORE Act through the House in recent weeks. If enacted, this legislation would end the federal prohibition of marijuana. After decades of fighting to undo the damage done by the war on drugs, could this be a tipping point? Joining me to discuss how America's war on drugs failed is Cynthia Roseberry, Deputy Director of the ACLU's National Policy Advocacy Department. Cynthia, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Cynthia, I wanted to address the question I mentioned in the introduction about whether you think we've tipped the scale on dismantling the war on drugs. And just for taking stock of where we are, as of this recording, people in five states in the 2020 election voted for marijuana legalization, either for adult use or medicinal. And in the cases of Mississippi, South Dakota, Montana, and Arizona, they voted for legalization in states that are typically conservative-leaning. More than 15 states plus the District of Columbia have legalized adult use of marijuana. 36 states now have some form of legal medicinal use. And the House, as mentioned, just passed the MORE Act, which is the sweeping legislation that would decriminalize marijuana and expunge some prior convictions. And there's more. I mean, the landscape seems very, very positive in the field of decriminalization for marijuana. How are you looking at this? Thanks. That's a great question. I'm looking at it with optimism because this was a long road to get here. Years of over-policing and over-criminalization of communities, particularly Black and brown communities with respect to marijuana. And there have been decades of advocacy around this issue. And so what we're seeing now is finally the voice of the people being heard by policymakers We saw Colorado get off to a great start and provide an example, not just with respect to the will of the people, but also the fact that there is a great deal of income and taxation to be earned. Which during COVID times feels even more important. Absolutely. It's not only a morally responsible thing to do, but it's a fiscally responsible thing to do as well. And do you see this as a tipping point, more importantly, a tipping point when we're talking about marijuana legalization towards either the federal government coming around finally to where the states have been leaning and towards a larger project of dismantling the war on drugs? I do see it as a tipping point with respect to marijuana. I think we saw it begin, at least with the Obama administration, when there was instruction not to prosecute possession charges under the federal statutes in states where marijuana had been legalized. And now we've actually come to an historic point where on the House of the Floor of Representatives, we had a vote to decriminalize marijuana. So it's absolutely a tipping point. It is a beginning. Let me just say that. But it it is a crucial point as we approach a 50-year anniversary of the war on drugs. And you've mentioned it and we've passed by it, but can you give us some more details on the MORE Act and why it's so important and what comes next? 
Sure. So the decriminalization itself is important, but also things like expunging the records of people who had suffered under criminalization, which would prevent them from being participants in the trade moving forward is important. And also there is a tax aspect, right? And that tax aspect hopefully will allow for reinvestment in communities that were decimated by the war on drugs, including a roadmap for allowing people who were living in poverty and resorted to selling marijuana to actually become participants in the legal trade. And that seems to get to something that I know the ACLU has definitely talked about a lot most recently in the report we published this spring, but just understanding how the criminalization of marijuana is also about racial control, racial social control. We published a report that said that racial disparities in marijuana arrests have not improved since 2010 even in many places that have decriminalized or legalized. And so are you saying the MORE Act addresses some of those wrongs from the longstanding abuses of the criminalization of drugs? I'm saying it can if implemented correctly. The expungement portion alone is important, right, to allow people to have their records removed so that they can be participants. And also, it disincentivizes policing of certain communities if it's executed properly, right? Because we know that Black and brown communities were over-policed, even where Black people and white people, for example, use marijuana in similar quantities, we saw that arrests among Black people was exponentially more. And so at least this, the MORE Act can disincentivize arrests for marijuana possession so that we don't see these disparities anymore. Were there any compromises made in the MORE Act that leave it lacking in certain places, or are we generally pretty happy about how it stands? To be clear, there are some improvements that can be made on the MORE Act. So while it is a great start, the MORE Act has room for improvement. For example, there are criminal penalties or punishment for incarceration with respect to failing to pay taxes, which is a normal part of any legislation. But we think that the bill, if it seeks to undo mass incarceration, shouldn't include any criminal penalties. And then The uh, regulatory framework, the next version of the MORE Act, has to encompass a regulatory framework that centers equity. To truly have a diverse and inclusive marketplace, we have to break down some of the barriers to entry into the regulated market while also ensuring cannabis is readily available to patients. But can you tell me just on that point, what does that actually mean? Like in practice, can you tell us what that would look like? Sure. So when you have licensing requirements like bonds for cannabis business or a lack of a tax exemption for compassionate use programs for small business owners, for example, those small business owners face an almost insurmountable financial obstacle. But when we can have regulation that either waives those fees or reduces those fees or the requirements for people who are economically disadvantaged and specifically were economically disadvantaged by virtue of their conviction for selling marijuana, then you have some equity in the application of the statute. 
All right. Got it. And Cynthia, I want to ask you a potentially impossible question for you to answer, but I'm going to try anyway. The Moore Act just passed the House. Does it have a shot in the Senate? And I know this is almost impossible because we don't fully know what the Senate looks like. But from what you know right now, what do you think? Does it have a shot? Well, so you're talking to someone who is levitating from the joy of having seen it pass right, in the House. I don't right? want to take away from the levitation. I don't want to bring you down. Well, and so I say this filtered through that lens. We know that there are some Republicans who have embraced the idea of decriminalizing marijuana. And as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, there are a couple of things that people who were opponents can embrace around this issue. The first being the moral part of it, that we can right some of the wrongs that we've done, some of the inequities that were created by the criminalization of marijuana. But also there's the fiscal incentive. There are Republicans who are particularly interested in the tax base, which is not unlike tobacco or alcohol that is taxed. And so when those funds can come into the coffers, you better believe there are more people interested in legalizing Mm. marijuana. Interesting. All right. Well, I'm going to take that as a positive sign that the MORE Act has a shot. I want to get at where the states currently stand post-election 2020. As we do a postmortem on the election, how did marijuana fare on the state level? So remarkably well in some really unexpected places like Mississippi that had a ballot measure to legalize marijuana. Montana, which was able to legalize recreational use. Of course, New Jersey is not as surprising as a state like Mississippi. Then we had South Dakota. So, I mean, we had some states that didn't surprise us as much. But we also saw what I think is a new way of thinking toward marijuana in some really surprising places. Yeah, I want to pause on Mississippi for a minute because not so long ago in 2018, I remember working on a case where a man was arrested for having medicinal marijuana on him. He was traveling from Oregon to Mississippi and he got an eight-year sentence for having that marijuana on him, which he had the license for. I mean, he had all of the documentation to go from an eight-year sentence to medicinal use being legal. That seems remarkable in a very short period of time. Are you at all surprised by how quickly things are turning, not just in Mississippi, but across the country in terms of public opinion around criminalization of drug use? I am surprised. And I'm not surprised at the same time. I mean, those of us who worked in reform for so long, we know these stories. But as we see, these stories begin to be highlighted. And as people begin to understand the effect on real people and their lives and how draconian the sentences can be, I think we see people saying, listen, I don't want to punish someone that long for something that they legally held in one state, but because they cross state lines, we can put them in prison forever. These are the kinds of stories that are turning the tide on marijuana legalization. I'm curious, you have experience as a criminal defense attorney. Do you have any stories or examples of cases where you saw firsthand the harm of the war on drugs and how draconian those sentences could be? Just to sort of lay the groundwork of where we're coming from. Do I have stories? (laughs) I'm a former trial lawyer. So most of the work that I did was in federal court. And 
What I can tell you is that the federal sentencing guidelines allow that on your third felony conviction for you to receive a minimum sentence of 20 years and up to life in prison. And that sounds like, oh, let's put away the kingpins. But here's what that means. It means that a young person, and usually a young Black man, was caught twice by the state with a felony amount of marijuana, which is usually more than an ounce of marijuana. On that third time, the feds can come in and charge that person with having a career criminal record, which means that the minimum that they could receive would be 20 years and they could receive up to life in prison. I mean, that's just draconian and insane. And what makes that even more insane is that in the federal system, one, parole has been abolished. And two, so the only way to get relief from that sentence is either retroactive application of new law, which is rare, or a presidential commutation, a nearly insurmountable task. Wow. So can you think of somebody from your past, you don't have to name them, but somebody you worked with whom you saw had every reason to live a constructive and wonderful life, but because of these draconian laws, because of a 20-year sentence, their life was taken away. Oh, absolutely. I can recall a young man, and I think it's important to look at this in the broader context of social ills. So this young man, who was not unlike many of my clients as a federal public defender, did not complete high school, was reared in a community where education was underfunded and where there was no access to job training, and in which the most successful person in the community dealt drugs. So that young man emulated the most successful person in the community. As a matter of fact, I can remember telling the judge when he asked me, well, why would your client sell drugs? And I said, judge, he did the same thing you did. He emulated someone he saw was successful. Wow. And so that was his location. And he sold drugs to feed his mother and his siblings. And on his third chance, on his third conviction, I had him as a client in the federal system, and he was facing 20 years in prison at 23 years old. That's insane. So he was in his 40s when he got out. Absolutely. And remember what that also means is that in that 20 years, because we've removed Pell Grants, right, because the waiting line for a GED in the federal system is years long. So getting a job coming out would be near impossible. Right. With a conviction and no education and no work job experience. Right. I think about it when I think about the 13th Amendment, when the 13th Amendment was ratified and people were released, they came out with no housing, no jobs, no health care, no education. And we know the 13th Amendment applies to people in prison today. They'll come out exactly the same way. No education, no jobs, no health care, no housing. And not to mention all the other effects. Those are just the top line. Just your community is, hierarchy. Right, exactly. <laughs> like your your ties to the community, your ties to your family, your ties to friends. Everything is moved on, but you haven't. In addition to all of the myriad collateral consequences of a conviction, there are certain jobs you can't get. There are certain places where you can't live. There's so many things that you cannot do. I think in one state, there's a fishing license that you can't get if you have a felony conviction. 
Well, that makes a ton of sense. I really see where that's coming from. (laughs) Cynthia, I want to ask you, is legalization enough? Does this legislation that we're seeing across the states need to do more to address the wounds of the war on drugs? I think you talked a little about it in relationship to the Moore Act. I'm wondering if the statewide legislation needs to do the same. Absolutely. If we can count the harm that was done, then we cannot say that there's nothing we should do to remedy those harms. And we know that enforcing marijuana loss costs about $3.6 billion a year. That is money that's taken away from other programs that could help people. We know that there's racial bias in enforcing marijuana laws, that if you're Black, you're three, almost four times more likely to be arrested for possession. And so to remedy the effect of having those criminal convictions and all of the things that we just mentioned, like removing people from society and their connections, we know that there is a need to remedy that. And that's why I mentioned going just beyond sort of the war on drugs and the criminal justice system. We have to we have to make an effort to set people back right. We have to give them an opportunity to earn a living, to be educated, to have a family, to live comfortably. We owe that to them because we took that from them in our misguided attempts. And frankly, the origin of the war was a racist and an ill-meaning attempt to criminalize marijuana. If today we say that possessing a certain amount of marijuana is not illegal or distributing a certain amount of marijuana or any drug is not illegal, then someone sitting in prison should be released. So states need to look at granting clemency to people who, if they were sentenced today, would not receive jail time or wouldn't be prosecuted at all. And what about also looking at funding some of the alternatives to criminalization? Just because you stop criminalizing drug use doesn't mean that suddenly its effects on society go away. Is there talk about also funding or supporting alternatives to criminalizing drug use? Yeah, there were some talks during the Moore Act, for example, about setting up funding for folks who want to enter the market, for folks who want to change their communities, for folks who have otherwise been decimated by the war on drugs. So re-education, job counseling, job training. I mean, there are so many ills that were caused by the war. So a fund to assist people is one of the ways to go back and correct some of those wrongs. Does that also include treatment plans? Absolutely. For those people who are addicted, There's some question about whether you can be addicted to marijuana, but certainly— Right. I guess when talking about some of the harder drugs, like Right. Certainly in the States. I think Oregon has suggested that there be some mental health programs set up to help people with their addiction issues. I want to talk about Oregon as well, because something major happened in Oregon this past election. Can you detail for us what progress was made in Oregon from their ballot initiatives this past election? Sure. So Oregon has really— got not in front of everyone with respect to legalization. Not only did they decriminalize marijuana, but they elected to decriminalize all drugs. So that includes heroin, cocaine. So possessing small amounts of these substances no longer carries a threat of jail. And as you might imagine, for people who are users, people who are addicted, people who need help, and then people who are just recreational users can now breathe a little bit freer. It's symbolic. 
Uh, but it's also practical to say that we are no longer going to subject people who have, in the case of addiction, a mental health condition to criminalization, but we're going to help them. We know that this is an epidemic, and so we're going to help you surmount this problem as opposed to adding to it. I feel like the general public is on board for legalizing marijuana, but when you get to some of the harder drugs like cocaine and heroin, it can feel a little dicier. Is Oregon trailblazing here? And do you think that if they have success, other states and potentially even someday the federal government might follow suit? That would be my hope. As we become more enlightened about what it means to legalize drugs, and Oregon is a trailblazer, they're out in front. We know that we have to do something differently to help people with respect to drug use and drug addiction. And we also know, I mean, I've seen in my work, for example, people come into the system, criminalized into the system because of their addiction. And they are told, you must go to treatment and you must get well. And any mental health professional will tell us that is not how people get well. So the first step is to decriminalize and then also to understand that this is a mental health issue, not a criminal matter, and give people the help that they need. I'm curious if you think what we've seen around the opioid epidemic has at all influenced how the public or legislators think about how we are criminalizing drug use, only because it seemed like when people talked about the opioid crisis, in part because it was something that affected, it seemed, white people as much as communities of color, that it was discussed as a health issue and not as a criminal issue. Do you think that there was some interplay there? I absolutely think there was. When we saw or when the nation saw young white women being criminalized for opioid use, then opioid use was seen as something other than a criminal matter. We know, like, for example, back to marijuana, we know that usage was the same, but the calls to reform were not there because the people who were criminalized, I believe, were people of color. But now that the face of criminalizing addiction changed, we saw people become more interested in changing the way we approach this. And, you know, frankly, it also comes on the end of or comes on as a part of the wave of our over-criminalization in general. If we criminalize, if we incarcerate 25% of the world's population, then what that means is more and more people are touched by criminalization, either themselves or a family member. And so we begin to look at this differently when we see that the faces of criminalization are changing. And another point that feels really relevant to the discussion of decriminalizing drug use is what happened over the summer. Like, none of this is happening in a vacuum. People aren't changing their minds because they woke up one morning and realized that drug use shouldn't be criminalized. And I'm curious how the conversation about decriminalization lives within this larger ecosystem of conversations about divesting from the police or the ascendance of the Black Lives Matter movement. Do you think that the boats are rising with the tide together? Is that an accurate? That's what I see. Is that what as the expert that you're seeing too? Yes, I am seeing that. You know, when we talk about decriminalizing or legalizing drugs, what we're also talking about is taking away 
the ability and the incentives for police officers to interact with the public. And so where we're seeing this harm from police interaction with the public, with George Floyd and all of the other folks. And we see people coming into the movement led by Black Lives Matter and other grassroots organizations to say, we want police out of our lives. Not only do we not want them to take our lives, but we don't want them to give them an opportunity to be in our lives in the first place. Then all of these issues do rise with that tide. I'm thinking also how decriminalizing drug use affects, for example, you know, the immigration detention system, because many people are in detention because of prior convictions, for example, drug use or other kinds of drug related convictions. And I'm wondering if you think that needs to inform advocacy. I feel like there's myopic tunnel vision around the MORE Act or around this piece of legislation. But if we think about everything is interconnected, I wonder if that affects how we advocate around it. Absolutely. So first, the advocacy changes because there's a broader base. We find places where we intersect with people whom we otherwise might not have been standing shoulder to shoulder to in our advocacy. But also... I think it's a reflection of how we understand that you cannot, for example, criminalize marijuana and remove that from the poverty that's left in a community after you take the young income earning age people out of a particular community in large numbers, right? Or If we understand that once we jail enough people, that the next generation, the children of the incarcerated people are affected tremendously and are more likely to have connection with the carceral system. So we absolutely have to think more broadly about it. And I think we are coming together across issues, across the aisle, if it were, across racial and gender boundaries and socioeconomic boundaries to understand that we're all interconnected and that unless and until we all advocate together for everyone's liberation, nobody is liberated. And Cynthia, it feels like we've come a long way in the last few years, particularly in the last couple of months, but there is still a really long way to go. What are the most pressing issues ahead of us in this field? Oh, there are so many. I think that we have to address policing because policing is connected to so many of the issues that relate to the war on drugs and other things. We have to address and the origins of policing being the slave patrol designed to suppress and oppress people of color in this nation and how there's been a continuing unbroken line of that kind of behavior in our country and that it harms us all. I was just having a discussion with someone about the cost of police misconduct, for example, and they were talking about the lawsuits that are involved, but the cost of police misconduct goes beyond some lawsuit that can be filed. When there is an uprising, when communities finally take to physical throwing off of the yoke of oppression of policing in their community. That whole community is harmed by that. And our faith in our police system and in our government is damaged by that. So when we begin to look at these issues, we have to understand that they are interconnected and that the war on drugs is really just a microcosm 
of the war on the people, right? And we, the people, have to be served by our governmental enemies. I'm curious, too, how you think people can get involved who don't already work in these spaces. I think it's relevant that of the 15 states and D.C. that have legalized recreational marijuana, only two states did this through the state legislature. All the rest got it done through ballot measures by the people. And I'm wondering if you think that's relevant in terms of advising people on how to get involved in this work, particularly around decriminalization. So, yeah, this is the moment again of the grassroots efforts. And so people have to, if they want to get involved, start local. It starts local with being interested in your district attorney races, for example, and understanding the position that the prosecutors who wield a tremendous amount of power are going to take with respect to these issues. And also using the power of masses to persuade lawmakers, policymakers, and others to do the will of the people and not the will of special interest groups and not the will of those who would maintain the status quo that harms the people themselves. This shouldn't be a commercial, but the ACLU is involved on the ground with these organizations, with the grassroots organizations that are getting these things done, that are making a difference in the lives of people. Well, Cynthia, thank you so much for talking to us about this. It's really exciting to see some positive movement and so quickly in the field. Thank you so much for reflecting on it with us. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you valued this conversation, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We so appreciate the feedback. Until next week, stay strong. Stay strong.